say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Psychic Teachers. I'm your host, Samantha Fay, And I'm Deb Bowen. And we are so happy to have you all join us this week. We are going to be discussing the Celtic goddess Caridwen with Christopher Hughes. But first, let me tell you a little bit about our esteemed guest. Christopher Hughes is a native Welsh speaker who lives on the island of Anglesey in Wales, the ancestral seat of the British Druids. He's chief of the Anglesey Druid Order, a Mount Hamas scholar, and a member of the Order of Bards, Ovids, and Druids. He's also a teacher, writer, workshop leader, and guest speaker at pagan conferences, camps, and festivals all around the world. Hughes is also a death services professional for Her Majesty's Coroner Service. And he's the author of several amazing books that we're going to be discussing today and the creator of the Celtic Tarot. He's just released his lovely book on grief entitled As the Last Leaf Falls. Today, we're going to be diving into his new book coming out called Caridwen, Celtic Goddess of Inspiration. Welcome to our show. We're so honored to have you. Oh, my word. Thank you so much for having me. That was quite the biography. I was sitting here thinking, my word, was that describing me? (laughs) Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you. We're delighted to have you with us, Chris. And as Samantha and I mentioned, as we were preparing for this episode, uh, many of our listeners are fairly new to looking at the world through different and new lenses. And Mm -hmm. when in America, you hear the word Druid, lots of images come up. So If you could tell us a little bit about Druidry and how it called to you. Can we start with that? We can. I guess Druidry, for for people of my culture, for the Welsh culture, it's ingrained in our society and also in all of our cultural references. The Druids lived here a frightfully long time ago. And so much of our history, our archaeology and our cultural expressions are defined and also informed by how the Druids lived here, what they did, and how they moved through this beautiful, beautiful landscape that I live on. So it's always been a part of the song of my culture, the song of my people, but also the song of of my spirit as well. Now, the word itself can be somewhat alarming to people who may only have references from television or from the media to go by, but essentially a Druid is somebody who practices a profound spirituality that is very much in tune with the natural world, and it's expressed through a Celtic cultural continuum. So it uses things like Celtic language, Celtic art, and other Celtic inspirational sources to define what that means. And if you take simply the word 
druid itself, which in my native tongue is derwith, they both mean the same thing. The word means somebody who knows the oak, but it implies an intimacy to knowing the oak and that our primary teacher is a tree. And I find that not only incredibly magical, but also wonderfully romantic. And as a child, it was something that sang to me from the from not only the deep past, but also something that was very rooted in the present, something that was tangible and had a continuation and a permanence to it that I could feel not romantically hearken back to a time long, long since past, but something that was very much present in the here and now. And that's what defines my druidry today, is that it has its roots in the past, but its trunk is very much standing here in the apparent time, in the apparent world, with branches that reach out into the future and branches that express a profound spiritual tradition and and a magic of heritage and mystery and wonder and magic. And all of that, and possibly so much more, goes into encapsulating what I perceive a druid to be and how a druid walks through the world, if that makes any sense. Yes, that's a beautiful way to describe it as as still living and very much alive today. I, I think sometimes people, I notice when I, I travel the world quite extensively with my books, and I often hear people talking of the Celtic people in the past tense. Now, of course, the, the Celts did exist in the past, but sometimes I think that people might also forget that the Celts exist today. We are a people of today. I am a Celt, my first language, my mother language is Welsh, a Celtic language. So we're very much a part of the present, not simply these relics of the past. And sometimes I feel when people do describe the Celts, it's very much in that past tense. But sometimes I like to remind people that we are still here. Our listeners often hear me talk about the Lakota concept of Matakiasi, which is translates roughly, we are all related, and mm. that so many cultures that, that we have put in a box and said, oh, in the past, are very much alive and vibrant and teachers to us all today. And it yes. sounds like that's certainly a part of, of your culture. Yes, very much so. Very much indeed. Very much. That's a beautiful way of describing it. Yeah. You weren't raised as a Druid, correct? Didn't you go on the Seeker's Path? Um, I wasn't necessarily raised as a Druid for even in Wales today, Druidry is, is still very much a path, an initiatory path. It is something that one is either invited into, honoured into, or undergoes a teaching programme or a series of inductions that pronounce one as a Druid. And usually the title of Druid, especially in Wales, is one that is bestowed upon you by your culture or within the various Druid components of that culture. So in, in Wales, we have two quite different expressions of Druidry. One is, is purely cultural and traditional, and the other is deeply and profoundly spiritual. But they both operate on the same levels, in that people are invited to take part in the Druidic expressions of each camp, if you like. And each one provides the tools necessary for somebody to to study and become a druid. It's becoming a druid. I like the word becoming for it implies that there is deep and profound relationship needed for the person to have their internal psychic constitution changed from somebody who was secular and ordinary to somebody who holds and imbibes an extraordinary quality. And I love the extraordinariness that lies at the very heart and foundation of, of Druidry, which is magic and mystery and, 
all of that really good stuff. Oh, that's poetic. I love it. <laughs> I love it too. And and speaking of magic and poetry and all that lovely beauty, tell mm. us how you came to be so deeply connected to Cara Dwin. Oh my word. Um, I think that story is almost the story of my entire life. I think she, she seems to have always been... If I go back to when I was a child, when I was a child in, I'm not entirely sure what you would call a primary school in the United States, but from the ages of five to nine. That, elementary that, school. Elementary school, yes. Yeah. So when I was occupying that era of my life, in school, we had a lovely teacher. Her name was Mrs. Griffiths. And on a Friday afternoon, when classes were finished, she would often read us a story. And her favorite stories were the stories from the Mabinogi and other Welsh myths and Welsh tales. And one of them was invariably, she seemed to have had a profound love for the story of Ceridwen and the birth of Taliesin. And every time that she would tell these stories, it always felt to me as if I was hearing news of home, as if I somehow knew who these people were and and had some intimate familiarity with the mythical landscape that they inhabited. And yet I'd look around that classroom and even now in my musings, I can cast my memory back to that particular time in my life and look around that classroom and all of the other kids are so bored, <laughs> you know, feigning to doodle or half napping. And yet I was compelled and quite gripped by who these people were. So they were very real to me. So I would play in the woods at the back of my grandparents' house and, and I would play with the characters from my native tales and legends and mythologies. They were very real to me. And I, and I felt somehow that their very essence, the echoes of these wondrous beings were still held in the trees and in the rocks and in the lakes. And then particularly the lakes when it comes to Keridwen herself. And she she comes across, she has this image of a stereotypical witch, I guess, almost a, a Disney witch. She spends a year and a day brewing a cauldron of awen for her son and scours the landscape for all of these herbs and plant materials too. It's very stereotypical image. And yet I understood her to be so much more than just a witch or a wise woman. I understood on some other level that she was profoundly more than that. And even to this day, whenever I feel I need an injection of inspiration or an injection of awe, I go to Keridwen's home, which is today located at Llyn Tegid or Lake Tegid in the Snowdonia National Park near the modern town of Bala. And that's where her tale arose, if you like, or almost as if that's where that's the landscape gave birth to her particular legend and story. And whilst I feel and sense and have a gauge of Keridwen, wherever I am in the world, there's nothing quite like being on her lakeshore with my feet in her water and looking at the trees as they walk out of the wind on that beautiful lakeshore. There's something quite wonderfully magic and poignant about it. And luckily, she's only an hour and a quarter from where I live on the island of Anglesey. So she's always been a part of my life, but also part of my life that's always sought to try try my best as humanly possible to to inspire people i think we we live in a world that can be so frightfully difficult at times and we live in times currently that are difficult and yet if only we can find little seeds and glimmers of inspiration that can help other people see joy. And that's what Keridwen has offered me. She's offered me a way to transform my own anxieties into joy. So is she seen as the crone? Do you even 
do you even put labels on her? How would you describe her? We don't have the concepts of maiden and mother and crone in the Welsh tradition in the same way as as the rest of neo-paganism or popular neo-paganism at least. She is referred to in the Welsh language as Mamr Awen, Mamr Awen, which is the mother of Awen. And, and in a way, Ceridwen's guise is she stands on the very edge of the cauldron of potential. So the cauldron of potential can be anything from somebody wanting to give seed to a particular project or an expression or an entire life even. And she stands at the edge of that cauldron and allows one to expressively create and bring oneself into creation through the powers of inspiration or the powers of Awen. So Awen is, the word Awen means blessed or holy breath. And it blows through the entire universe and it sings of its own potential. It sings of its own creation, sings of its own joy. And Keridwen is the conduit for that. She's the conduit that allows us to be inspirational, but also sagacious. So she is, she's not seen in any particular aspect other than as the primary mother of Awen, the figure that brings the power of Awen into manifestation long enough for it to take shape and form. So without Keridwen, the force of Awen, the force of inspiration would be too ethereal, it would be too whimsy, and it would, and it would fail. But Keridwen and Halkoldron, of course, gives it shape and form. Keridwen, in a, in, a, in a way, you could perceive Keridwen as the very iron that makes up the fabric of the cauldron itself, that holds the brew long enough for it to do its job. So, so that's how, how we connect to her here in Wales and, and, of course, within my own Druid tradition. So, yes, she's, she's significantly more than the three components, the three aspects within popular neo-paganism of the goddess. She's the mother of inspiration. Wow. So let me ask this question because, uh, and I want to talk about the new book that you have coming out in March, but From the Cauldron Born is absolutely one of my all-time favorite books ever. Well, and you. I love, the, the, and thank you for writing it. I <laughs> love the way that you go through, you tell us the story mm-hmm. and then every possible character, including the cauldron itself mm-hmm. in the book, are all examined and, and looked at from a lot of different angles in the way that, that you write the book. And then at the end uh, of the book, there's this wonderful year-long exercise that one can go through. And I've, I've done most of it. There are parts of oh, brilliant. that I have not done, but I have done most of that. One of the things that struck me as, as I've read this book now many times is that from your writing, I can see that each mm-hmm. of us can find all of those characters in the story, from Caridwen to the Cauldron to the Coracle to every aspect of the story within ourselves. Was that something that was that evolved as you were writing the book? Is it something that came to you? How do you see that? Am, am I on the right track with that question? <laughs> oh gosh, yes, very much so, very much so. Um, I think one of the one of the most poignant things about the Welsh language is that when people hear some of the names of the characters and the archetypes within our tales, they they make an assumption that these are personal nouns, they're, they're just a name that a person has, but in fact they're not that at all. They're, they're descri- they're, they are verbs, if you like. They're describing an element of the human condition. So if you took somebody like, um, who should I pick? I'll pick P- 
Praderi, who is Priannon's son in the four branches of the Mabinogi. Praderi's name means anxiety and to be anxious and describes a separation anxiety that one has from one's parents, which is exactly what happens to Praderi. So in the tale of Keridwen, her son is almost the hinge upon which the entire tale lies upon. And he has two names. The first name is Morvran, which means cormorant, but his name is rapidly changed by his mother because of his profound ugliness. And she changes his name to Avagdi, and Avagdi means utter darkness. And in stark contrast, his sister, his twin sister, Kreiru, which means the beautiful relic or beautiful egg. So in essence, you have shadow and you have light, and both of those components are essential for the cauldron to brew. But so is Mordan. Mordan means liminality. Guillaume Bach is the, the innocent, the naive. Tegid, Keridwen's husband, he's also a component. These are all almost ingredients that are required for the recipe for the Awen. So one can see them as archetypes or one can internalize them and see them as imminent aspects of oneself. And I think either is fine or working with both at different levels at, at different times. So when we when we work with the cold, and so you know, the the ritual that you mentioned, the back of the book, is a is a ritual that has been done several times for an entire year with up to seventy people. We would take a pilgrimage to Lake Bala, the home, the legendary home of Keridwen, and we would find all of those components within ourselves: liminality, innocence, the shadow, the light, and all of the, the holding qualities of the, of the coracle itself. And we would put those into the cauldron. And as a group, sometimes it really was up to 70 of us. We would cause that cauldron to boil. And then when we left that particular pilgrimage, we would all of us fire up our cauldrons every full moon at home with a little bit of the liquid taken from the main cauldron. And we would keep adding to it every single month and ritualize our own connection to how we can be a power and force for inspiration in the world. And then a year later, we return to the shores of Lake Bala, where the cauldron cracks and the tale comes to its conclusion. And the conclusion being that we become the seeds of wisdom for the future. We become the sagacity that the future requires by dreaming new inspirational dreams into being. And at the heart of that are all of the, the requirements, the, the required ingredients for the cauldron, if you like. It wasn't something that I decided whilst I was writing the book, it has always been a part of the tale that it's referring to something outside of yourself, or simultaneously it's referring to something within yourself. And there's a there's a beauty in that, because one would assume that that is a, a form of duality, but I would disagree with that and, and necessarily call it a synthesis, that between the external and the internal, there's also a spark of relationship, which would be a third component, and that that third component is synthesis and the spark of creativity. So, so yeah, it's always it's always been there. This fact that all of the characters and all of the concepts and the the items in the tale are essential ingredients. Yeah, sounds so participatory. You know, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about how most of the religions I'm familiar with were so passive. You know, we we sit in a pew and we watch yes. the ritual take place. And what you're describing with everyone contributing to the cauldron and everything mm. having this living and breathing character to it, it just sounds so marvelous and and Mitakiosin, you know, just everyone participating and cooperating mm. together. That's so beautiful. 
Very much so. And we've, we've spent several, several years on the shores of, of Lake Bala over the last couple of decades. And I can't even begin to describe to you how wonderfully cathartic and transformative that process is, even to the extent that we do have a vast cauldron, a cauldron that is so large you could you could fit an adult male inside this cauldron. And that's the cauldron that we use, and there's a fire underneath it. And uh, But there's a public footpath that encompasses the entire lake. And anybody is more than free and welcome to to walk along the shoreline. And as often they would, and it always would bemuse me that seemingly the ordinary people who would take to the footpath around the lake just would seem to not notice this gigantic cauldron with wow. people around it doing peculiar things. They just wouldn't see it. It was almost as if it was a part of the landscape itself. And in all the years we've been going there, never has a single individual walked up to us and said, right, what's going on with this cauldron? <laughs> no one's ever done that. It's as if it, it fits seamlessly into that landscape. And there's a profound magic as well in, in not simply engaging with a body of mythology as something that is outside of you, but also recognizing it as a part of your internal constitution and of your internal mythological landscape. When we enact components of the tale and when we move into practical, physical and spiritual relationship with them, something happens. They, they lift up from words of dry ink on parchment and they become something else. And that magic, that profundity of connection is frightfully addictive and also profoundly cathartic to, to be engrossed with, especially with a lot of people whose sole aim is to seed the future with a wisdom of inspiration. It's just beautiful to, to do it, especially in Keridwen's legendary home. I can tell you that wouldn't happen in America. <laughs> <laughs> None of that. If we had a giant cauldron, Deb, can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm scared to imagine what might happen. <laughs> it's interesting what people see or don't see or, or how they yes. view respect or curiosity. And, you know, and I have a question about Cara Dwin. If mm. she's the mother of Awen, and mm. as I understand it from your books, and I could be wrong, I feel like Awen flows through all of us. Yes, very much so. So Awen is the the breath. If you we try and put it in a in a is little it kind of like the Holy Spirit. I guess you could. I mean, certainly within medieval Welsh culture and even up to modern Welsh culture, Awen is certainly perceived as an element of the Holy Spirit within the Christian tradition because it, it works for them and it seems to work and fit seamlessly with whatever tradition that you belong to. So when we look into the deep past of the Welsh Bardic tradition, the Awen was very much a universal spirit that seems to sing of our own paradisial origins, if you like. It sings of where we come from, who we are as a people, who we are as a universe. And essentially, the Awen remembers everything. It has been everything and it blows through everything. And in a way, Keridwen acts as its conductor. If you imagine a conductor in front of an orchestra with his wand, with his or her wand, that is Keridwen. She's the conductor of it. And all of the bards and all of the magicians and the, the druids and the witches who work within that particular mythological landscape are her orchestra. And their role, if you like, is to take her direction, turn around to the world and direct the blowing of the Awen so that we rise from anxiety, so that we rise from despair. 
that we look to our own ability to seed hope and joy and magic in the world. And sometimes I think we need reminding of the fact that we all have that ability. So as the conductor of that particular magic, she becomes our mother. She's the mother of our in itself. If you would go, if you were to go to the National Eisteddfod of Wales, which is a huge cultural celebration, which has Druids at its very heart every August in Wales, sometimes, um, especially on a Sunday, they have a religious service within that festival. And the religious service is predominantly Christian here in Wales. And they will speak of the Awen as very much a product of the Holy Spirit. And yet to the rest of us, it you know, it's a pro- it's a product of the prophetic spirit and of the universal spirit. So it has this beautiful inclusivity to it that is neither owned and nobody has sole guardianship of it. And I think that's a beautiful message in itself. Well, that really is, because that's something we need to remember is that there is no one church or organization that is in charge of this gift of magic and creation within us all. That's beautiful. Yes, that's a really lovely way of saying it. Lovely. I feel all the feels. Me too. (laughs) Tell us where you're going with this new book that's coming out in March. So Um, when I I finished uh, From the Cauldron Born, which was, oh my gosh, I think it was 2012. I have no idea where the time goes. Oh, doesn't it go so rapidly? And and at the end of it, I realised that I had barely scratched the surface of who Keridwen was. And... Keridwen herself, as I was engaging with her, I kept having a sense of, um, tell them more, tell them where I came from, tell them who I was to your people, tell them who I was to the people before your people. And I and I knew on some level that was there was significantly more to her story than first meets the eye. So if you look at my Cauldron Born book, it's very much focused on the primary tale that is very popular in modern neo-paganism and in modern magical culture. And yet at the same time, the that particular story is relatively new, particularly in, in a Welsh timeline sense. It's, it comes to us from around the 1490s to the 1550s, and it's very much a distillation process. And that there was so much material and connection that the Welsh bards and the Welsh bardic tradition had with Ciridwen for centuries and centuries before that story ever found its particular form. So we know that that story exists in a complete version in around 12 manuscripts and it's fragmented in dozens and dozens of other manuscripts but when one looks into the deep past to as far back as the 9th century the 7th century Keridwen was still being connected to and she was being connected to by the the Welsh bards who were responsible for the oral tradition of Welsh culture they were the guardians of culture if you like so I knew that there was more to Keridwen I didn't quite expect to find what I found, which you know is now this 400-page new book by Kerid by um, Llewellyn Worldwide. But it was quite an adventure to go on this three-year journey to to discover who she was to to my own people, and not just a figure that occupied a single body of mythology, but rather a figure that embodied significantly more and was also imbued into the lives of so many people over countless generations. So that's what I explore in the new book and, and hopefully give people a, a different perspective as to who she is and why she's relevant to us today. I feel like place is so important in in your work and your writing. I mean, I've I've heard you talk about how 
the Roman Empire, you know, particularly honed in on Anglesey, right, to attack them, and yet Drudry still survives. Can you talk about why Wales in particular is so connected to all of this beauty and magic and nature? I think that we were of significant threat to the the might of Rome. So in 62 AD, the Caesar at the time commanded one of his chief commanders, Suetonius Paulinus, to march from Londinium, the current capital of London, um, all the way up to the island of Anglesey to, to sack, as it were, the Druid stronghold of the Isle of Anglesey, or Anismon in the native tongue. And this was very much a centre of Druidism within the British Isles. And even the Druids of Gaul, whom the Romans had encountered during their progression further north, had said that they sought and were given their teachings in the islands of Britain. And then when you look at how that is condensed down to the island of Anglesey being very significant, there's, there's a strong possibility that this was one of the primary colleges, if you like, of Druidry. And it may also have been significant because we're, we're primar- primarily placed as a, um, a significant location between the British Isles and the green of the Emerald Isle of Ireland to our west. So the Romans came here and that was no, that was no small task. They marched 20,000 men-at-arms from London, which is 290 miles away with enormous mountains in the way, simply to destroy the, the Druids of the island of Anglesey. And um, and of course, the might of Rome did eventually take the Celtic people under their wing. And we very quickly within the, around 50 to 100 years became the Celto-Romano people. Yet we still clung on to what was essentially a part of us that was very much indicative of our relationship with the land itself. And I think it's the land. I mean, I'm looking out of my office window now and I look across the southern reaches of my small island. It's a very small island that I live on. And I see the mountains of, of Snowdonia, which, you know, those mountains are full of dragons and heroes and myths and legends and ladies in lakes with swords and goddesses who live on forts in the islands out at sea and other goddesses that speak to birds and call to the birds to carry their messages to their brothers and sisters. And and all of that is still very much a part of the song of this landscape. And, And it's as if it didn't matter how loudly the Romans shouted, the land shouted louder still. And it sang a song that we just cannot ignore. And and even within secular Welsh culture, it's so much a part of our spirit, that dragon spirit, if you like, of, of our native red dragon sings from our blood. And all of those gods and goddesses and myths and legends sing with it. We we very much are the, a land of magic. And, and I don't think anything could silence that magic. And even when Christianity came, Christianity absorbed so much of the elements of Celtic culture and became the Celtic Christian church. And that was still a very magical organization until, you know, eventually the Reformation made things slightly more difficult. But today, when I when I stand on the very edge of the shoreline, only mere yards away from my home, it, it just sings. And I come home and I listen to the radio and even our pop singers are singing of the same things. And yet their connection to it might not be identifiable as Druidry, as I identify as being a Druid. And yet it sings to them. And I think it's the tenacity of the spirit of the land itself that has ensured its survival. And I think there's possibly other mechanisms involved as well. And I and I explore so much of that in my new Keridwen book, things like the narrative spirit and the prophetic spirit and the magical spirit of 
this particular part of the world. And I'm not entirely sure what makes it so significant, but I would, I think I would vie for anybody to not sense it if they were to come here. And we respond to it because I don't think you can do anything but, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> I know I'm always trying to simplify things, but it, it's almost like that's Caridwen's home and she's protecting it. It's very much Caridwen's home, yes. And, and also all of the other deities that go into creating the family tree of, of deities that we have here in Wales. And they're all so much a part of the landscape in relationship with itself. And of course, we can't separate ourselves away from that relationship and from that landscape. We are a part of it. And if you consider the beauty, we have so much obviously is lost. We, we're not entirely sure what the Druids believed other than what we're told by the classical authors. And the Druidry of today is very much a modern creation from about 300 years ago. And yet it's something that invokes and honours the spirit of the deep past. And yet at the same time, if you consider that, the majority of people who will be listening to this programme have had a sense of the ethereal. They've felt the touch of the psychic, of the numinous upon their lives. And sometimes I think we, we might not give that enough credence. Because if you consider that on our planet, there isn't a single new drop of water, not one single drop. All the water on Earth has always existed here and carries the memories of everything that it's ever touched, everything that it's ever been, every animal, every human that it's been through carries all of that. And to stand in any location and have a sense of the continuation and the sum totality that we all represent is one of the most magical, wondrous things that I can do as an individual, not just as a druid, but to to sense that we are all a part of the song of this amazing planet that we live on. And it's broken up into little bite-sized pieces that we can all connect to with different, you know, with language and art and other aspects of our personalities that it sings to. So Yes, it is very much her home, but I think at the same time, it's it's also so much more than just her home, but also it's our home in relation to hers. That makes sense. And it explains why you say in, in all the books I've read of yours, you don't have to be Celtic to participate in this. No, exactly. I mean, do you recall the early 20th century occultist Dion Fortune. Dion Fortune was was a, a prolific writer. She was an incredibly sagacious woman and uh, profoundly magical. And she spoke quite candidly about us all having a psychic constitution and that our psychic constitution is somewhat different to our constitution as a species, as a particular creed. So one might not necessarily have any genetic connection to the Celtic cultures, and yet one's spirit might sing of it and be compelled to explore it. And whenever I've come across people who are compelled by any particular expression of magic, if they do so in a manner that deeply honours and profoundly respects that culture, and they try their best to learn what they can about those peoples. I don't think that that is an appropriative practice or, or a form of appropriation if it's done with good intent and integrity. And that ultimately, if something calls to you, how can you ignore it? If it sings to your spirit, it's doing so for a particular reason that must be relevant to your own self-development and self-transformation. 
And, and I think that is why we find people who are drawn to the Druid mysteries and the Celtic mysteries from as far. I mean, I go to Australia and you think, wow, that's 12,000 miles away on the other side of the planet. And yet some of those people feel a profound calling to express their spirituality through a Celtic cultural expression. And I think that's beautiful. And especially if it's done honorably and with, with good intent, you know? In this new book that's coming out, will there be exercises? What kind of connection will the reader of that new book have that enhances what you've already done in From the Cauldron Born? Well, it, it's a it's a little bit of a roller coaster ride. There's 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 an awful lot of exploration of the Welsh Bardic tradition, which is where Ceridwen has existed for the last 15, 1600 years. And I guess the first half of the book is very much about exploring her background, and some of it may come across as somewhat scholarly. But it was very difficult for me to avoid that because I needed to translate certain parts of Welsh poetry, which have never been translated into English before. Some of these will be the first time that people have seen them in the English language. So you have that element to it. You have the background, you have the learned aspect. And, and I think that was important because we know that Ceridwen was somebody who, and is somebody who very much respects and venerates those who enhance their mental capabilities as well as their psychic capabilities. And that she, in the Court of Dawn, according to one of the poems from the Book of Taliesin, she says that she was the most knowledgeable person within that court. And she very much strives for her children to be knowledgeable. And I base the first half of that book on that particular theme. But then I offer people the tools to be able to not only connect to her, but also to what she represents and the the different spirits and the different narratives that have kept her alive and, and how to move into relationship with her. So I think that's perhaps the most important component is how do we move into relationship and that the quality of that relationship is what defines and transforms us. It's a book of two halves, I guess, or maybe even three halves. I think initially I did want it in three parts, but I think my, my editor said, no, we'll just number the chapters from one to 36 and that'll be, that'll be it. And, um, but yeah, so, so it's very much historical and then it goes into the, into how we develop a relationship. And then at the very end, I have rituals and practices and, and other, in Welsh, we call them suinion and suin, which the closest approximate word for that in the English language would be a spell, but Ceridwen herself was very much somebody who practiced the art of suin, which is a form of, of spell casting, of enchanting, of, of conjuration, if you like. So I offer all of those lovely good stuff. And I'm and I'm and I'm hopeful that she's that she's proud of it more than anything. And that her spirit is proud of of what I did because gosh it, it was a somewhat difficult birthing it took a long time and I spent so many days and days and days in dusty libraries desperately trying to find just tiny tidbits of information that might have eluded me so it was difficult so I hope that people will not only gauge a sense of connection but more than anything I hope that they will have a sense of my profound love for her and that it's that love that I want to express into the world. And I sincerely hope that that's what people will, will glean from it, not just, you know, her history and her and the practicalities of being in relationship, but also the love of it. If my love of her is mm. 
any barometer to be used because of the work that you have done. You have certainly proven your point and, and done what she has wanted you to do in honoring her. Lovely. Thank you so much. <laughs> and, and speaking of, of your work with her in, in many different ways, mm. your Celtic Tarot deck is just lovely. Chris Downs' illustrations are enchanting. They're, they're just wonderful. It's a beautiful deck. And I could sense Caridwen's hand on this deck. So can you talk a bit about, about the creation of the deck and about her relationship to it as well? Oh, gosh, yes. It, it sounds almost like a cliche. And I think I do briefly describe it in the, in the book that accompanies the Celtic Tarot. But Tarot literally changed my life, literally, completely and utterly changed my life. I was, I was just an, your ordinary Welsh teenager, you know, as teenagers invariably are. But I was very much an avid reader. And I went to a secondhand bookshop in the small harbour town of Hollyhead here on the island of Anglesey when I think I was around 13 years old. And I was rooting around in an old box. And most of the stuff that came into this bookshop came from house clearances, invariably after a death. And in this box, there was all manners of wonderfully interesting books. But right at the bottom was a battered, and it was so battered, little tiny box, well, not so little, I guess. And it had the Rideaway Tarot in it. And remarkably, every single card was present, but these had been used on the edges. You know how they would go black with use? They looked <laughs> like that. Best. And these had been loved, and and I I felt my my breath catch in my throat. I had no idea what they were, but I needed them. I really needed these cards, so I I took them to the counter to the checkout, and the the man gave me this funny look, and he said, "Do you know what they are?" And I said, "No, but I want them." And he dropped them into a little brown paper bag, and he looked at me with disdain, <laughs> as if I was doing something naughty. And that intrigued me even more. I thought, "Wow, this adult, this grown human man, had this peculiar reaction. What on earth are these cards about?" And I ran and I ran like the wind, as fast as my long legs would carry me, to a little den that myself and some friends had built in a in a in a wooded overgrowth just on the on a park near the coast. And I sat on a log and the winds were howling and the rain was beating down on the trees above my head. And I went through these cards and I knew that they were full of magic, absolutely full of magic. And yet I didn't understand anything about it. And from that particular point, I always refer to that as my moment of wild awakening. Somebody came up to me that day, it felt, as I was sitting on that log, almost felt like somebody came right up behind me, leaned over towards my left ear and said, psst, wake up, you're dreaming. And I thought, oh my gods, there's a whole world of magic everywhere. And up until that moment, I could barely taste it. But now all of the flavors of this magic were flooding into my being. And all because of this deck of cards. So I've had this profound love for tarot and I teach tarot. I love, 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 love teaching tarot. And when Llewellyn Worldwide asked if I would create a tarot with an overlay of Celtic mythology, well, I nearly bit their arms off. I thought, gosh, yes, please. Yes, very much so. So I wanted it to be not only reflective of my particular journey with the tarot, but also to be imbibed and full of the radiancy of that which I love and connect to the most. And my high priestess card is Keridwen. My temperance card is Keridwen. She's very much a part of the story of that tarot. And I spent so much time sitting on the edge of her 
lake. There's a beautiful, oh, there's, there's the most stunning oak tree right on this side of her lake. And it's been weathered. She stood there for 400 years and you can see her roots and you can sit in amongst her roots. It's quite, quite joyous. And I sat there for what seemed like days on days on end, designing these cards and very much talking to Keridwen and the spirits of that place as to, gosh, is this what I should do? And how should I explore this? And Chris was able to bring that to life. And it was the most beautiful, beautiful process. And I enjoyed it. It took us three years to create it. And I have this I still, to this day, every time I I take them out of their little pouch, I can't quite believe that they're mine. But I look at them quite incredulously and think, oh my gosh, I made you. Oh, <laughs> I love so that cool. sense so much. <laughs> but they but they did. And I and I and I really hope people don't hear this as a cliche, but they just changed my life. They've had such a profound impact. Even though I am I'm a druid and that is my spiritual expression, the tarot is what I have the softest spot for. You know, of all of the things and all of the the wonders of of my druidry and my spirituality, the tarot. As I'd just go on. You would you would have to shut me up. You'd both have to go enough. No, please don't. Because <laughs> I just love it so so much. It seems to me not so much that magic finds you, but that you find magic. You know, because someone else could have looked through that box and been like, "Oh, that's an old pack of cards." It just just in that story, it just feels like you talk a lot about that that soft spot, whether it's in the day of, of twilight or dusk or dawn, mm. about finding that that liminal space. And and it seems as though you almost exist there all the time. How can people get into that place in their own lives? You know, I think about you and in your beautiful country, and I'm thinking, I love America. I love my country. Mm. But we're surrounded by strip malls and concrete and honking <laughs> horns. <you know? laughs> How would you invite listeners, at least here in America, to participate with that magic wherever they are? Do you know, I think I think one of the fundamental things about magic is perception. And like you rightly said, there, there has to be an openness in one in order for for magic to come in and also we need to make space for magic as well and you like you rightly said somebody else might have looked in that box and just seen an old deck of cards and walked away but at that precise moment there was something about my connection to that box within that moment that was ready and willing to accept magic and wonder to come into my life and sometimes i think that the reciprocal nature and relationship that we have with the magic and and with the other worlds and with other subtle realms of existence is not a one-way street. I often think that maybe people might perceive the magical world as something that is very much directed towards them without realizing that it's a two-way highway. There are vehicles moving from the subtle worlds and there are vehicles moving from the apparent world. And that once they're aware of one another, that suddenly we start to become like, oh, I, I see you. I see you over there. I feel you over there. I'm open to the numinous around me. And I think a lot of it boils down to perception. And at the foundation of that perception, what I find, and when I pull all of magic down to its basic components, what I find is joy and awe. And I love also that in the Welsh word awen, you can see the English word awe 
It's spelled A-W-E-N, but the word awe is in there. And often I think that as we grow up, we're taught, aren't we, so much to, to keep on keeping on, to strive, to get through school, to get through college, to get to that job, to get to that next job, to get to the new car, to get to the new house, to get to your pension, live your pension, and then you die. And they're like, oh my word, what on earth was all that about? Instead of stopping, and I think when we stop, and we consciously stop and we make room for magic, it floods in. It doesn't trickle in. I believe firmly that it floods in, but that we need to make time for that to happen. And of course, you know, reading all the books is wonderful and doing all the fabulous things like reading tarot cards is marvelous, but sometimes we need to stop and just be. And whilst I have this profound, wonderful relationship with, with my landscape that opens me up to so much of the, the magical and the numinous. I also have that. I, I go to the United States a lot, sometimes three, four times a year. And I've had the most profoundly magical moments in that landscape. I have such a soft spot for the United States and, and Australasia. And I remember being on Mount Tamapias, just north of San Francisco, and I walked out of a, the tree line with nothing in my thoughts other than just to be and to sense and feel the trees and the nature and the growth that was around me. And the trees thinned out and I found myself on a plateau overlooking the entire, what seemed like the entire Pacific Ocean in front of me. And I had such a sense of the magic of that place at that precise moment in time and it flooded into my being and and all I could do was cry. There were no words. There was, there was nothing other than the land, the rock, the mountain, the sea, all of us dancing and enjoying each other's company. And I think sometimes we consider ourselves to be islands that are so separate from everything, isolated from the world. But if we just shift our pers perspective just ever so slightly to the left and think, I'm not separate. I'm in relationship with all of these things and sing. And, and we very much teach our students in Druidry to sing to the natural world. And invariably it will sing back to you. There's a thought in the Welsh mysteries that the Awen sings inwardly of itself and all things are compelled to sing it in return. So if you stop and settle and look at a rock and then be with it or with a tree or with a river and sing, open your heart and simply sing. It will sing back to you, but it's in the moment of losing oneself that one finds oneself. And in the Welsh tradition, we have a name for that. We call it Tau, spelt T-A-W, which means a, a profound silence and stillness. And it's in that moment of not knowing where you end and it begins, I think that magic floods into you. It's not a trickle action, it's a flooding. And in that heave, as we would call it in Welsh, one suddenly realizes that nothing is separate, everything is connected, and we're a part of the dance of this world and this universe. And, and I firmly believe that that's where magic lives. But in order to do that, we must stop, we must be still, and we must learn to listen. And when we listen, we hear, and when we hear, we listen, and our hearts burst, it just bursts with it all. And I find that bursting so wondrous and painful and joyous and all of the things that human language could even, couldn't possibly articulate all at the same time. Yes, and, and I get a sense of it now. I think, gosh, I must go down to the beach and once I've had this conversation <laughs> <laughs> and sing and sing and sing and sing to it. There's so much joy in the world that we can be blinded by the pain and the sorrow and forget to see the joy.
and the awe of this remarkable planet we live on and the remarkable connections that we have to all of the concepts and constructs and things that live here. There's so much magic. That's the magic. That's the best Mm. definition of magic I've heard. Yeah. I can't even believe that you have like a full-time normal job and then you do all of this. (laughs) (laughs) We could do, we could do a whole hour on your normal full-time job. I'm not entirely sure it's normal either. Well, (laughs) Well, somebody's got to do it, and thank you for doing it. I, I mean, really, as as I read, as the last leaf falls, which by the way, folks, just came out a couple of weeks ago, so it is available already. As I read that, and and some of the heart wrenching stories that you tell, and your your kindness and your reverence to the work that you do in the morgue is just it made me cry. It was just beautiful. Thank you. Oh my word, I've 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 been drawn to to that particular vocation I guess ever since I was a child as well so so much I think of what I do have come from a a profound sense of of calling in in one way or one manner or another and I can't I can't I can't lie that this this year has been profoundly difficult for me and my colleagues it's been awfully difficult we've we've not had the tools to to deal with the way in which people have died during COVID-19 and the way in which people are dead and the way people are, are grieving. It's been a curveball and none of us were prepared for it. None of us had. We'd obviously developed tools over years and years of experience, but it's been frightfully difficult to put those tools to use and, and feel as if one is doing something that's contributing to people's emotional relocation of the dead. And um, and of course, they're, they're my patients. I I look after in the the main mortuary, the morgue that I work in, I look after about two and a half thousand people a year, thereabouts approximately. And they are my patients and we're there to look after them. There's nobody else to look after those people who who had life, who had living, who were in love, who fell and scraped their knees and did all of the things that we do. And, and we're there to ensure that what stories they have and can no longer tell are told. And that if any wrongdoing was done to them, that justice prevails and questions and investigations are asked. And it's been difficult during the pandemic to maintain so much of that. And it's been frightfully painful for us to to have to deal with so many. We've had so many people die here of COVID-19. And yet it's still very much a part of my vocation and my my spirit, my druidry informs my work. My work informs my druidry. It's a reciprocal relationship because there's so much of what I do, which is embedded in the big questions and in the numinous and in the subtle and in the mysterious. We work with the energy of death. So therefore there is this other element to it, which is far, far supersedes that of science and pathology. And it's it's been a difficult year, frightfully difficult. And I hope when we come out of it, we will have learned new things about how we deal with those who are grieving and how we deal with those who have died of, of diseases that have been sent as a bit of a curveball, you know? Well, you write a lot about understanding your light and your shadow mm. and how important it is to get in touch with your shadow to really be a participant with magic. And I've tried to think of this difficult, awful year as an invitation to explore my shadow because you know what else can you do with this awfulness 
Yes, yes, exactly. And and I think sometimes we we try to suppress our shadows so that we appear as nice and we appear as decent. And of course, our shadows are not necessarily representative of aspects of ourselves that are wholly negative because we do need the relationship between the shadow and light. And essentially, if um, it's almost, I often feel that sometimes people might think or assume that the opposite of love is hate. The opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is indifference. It's a little bit like when people first learn the tarot, they might assume that a reversed card is the diametrical opposition of its upright meaning. And of course, it's not. It's not always that clean cut. It's not always that black and white, that our shadows are not black and white. So if we if we lose our passions in life, we will also lose our anger and that our anger is in response to that which we feel so much passion for. So our shadows can be very much an ally as well as a foe. And if we try to suppress our shadows, and, and the beautiful thing about particularly the Druid mysteries and the, and the Welsh tradition is we have these twins of light and shadow, and they exist throughout our mythologies. In the tale of Ceridwen, when we have the divine twins there, we have utter darkness and we have beauty. And yet we know that darkness can be the pool of potential. We can pull anything out of the dark and make it manifest if we have the right tools to put stuff together. And we also know that beauty isn't always love and light. People have fought, killed, and gone to war because of beauty and the treachery within beauty. So I think even within our lightest aspects, we can see components and seeds of our shadows. And in our shadows, we see components and seeds of our light. And to try and bring those together and by the gods, sometimes that's really difficult, especially when we've all been faced with what we've had to deal with since February. People's shadows can can become tantamount to paralyzing them with fear and anxiety and trepidation. And it's a frightfully difficult spiritual task then to try and bring all those pieces back to some form of cohesion. And the light and shadow can teach us so much about who we are essentially as people. And I think when dealing with a shadow, acknowledging the power of the shadow goes so much towards the assimilation of the shadow rather than attempting to put it in a box, tie a gingham ribbon about it and putting it on a shelf and forgetting about it. That won't be forgotten. It will find the cracks in the veneer of nice and it will erupt. When working with our shadows, I think it's vitally important that we understand that without our shadows, we are half the people that we truly are. And if we integrate and acknowledge the power of our shadow, it immediately decreases its power to overwhelm us and we can work with it. And I think usually for the majority of people, the shadow merely wants to be heard. And if we lend it a year and give it a voice, then what can come from our shadows can be profoundly transformative. And um, But you're right, that in the last few months, I've seen so many people succumb to the paralyzing effects of their shadows. And you know, here in the United Kingdom, our suicide rates have increased exponentially and terrifying. It's been terrifying how many people have taken their own lives. And for so many of them, the shadow became too much and overwhelmed them to the extent that they could no longer participate in, in life. And we have to deal with those things as we come to them, and there's no easy way to deal with them. But I think as individuals, we can do so much to integrate our light and shadow. If we stop, take note, lend a year, and give it voice. Wow. It's so beautiful the way you speak. I don't even know how to respond. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that response itself was perfect. <laughs> Thank you. I need time to process all the beauty of the words. <laughs> Chris, I have a confession. I don't, I don't normally listen to our podcast episodes after we've aired them, but mm-hmm. I, I have a feeling I'm probably going to back, go back and listen and take notes. <laughs> Deb, I was thinking the same thing. I always hate editing the show because I don't like to listen to myself. And I was like, I was just, right. like, I'm going to enjoy editing this. <laughs> <laughs> Tell people where they can find you and dive into more of your of your beautiful words and your work. Oh gosh, okay. Um, I don't really have a website with. Oh, I'm so bad with technology, and everybody keeps telling me off. And I, I you know, I'm a child of the '70s. You know, it's it's difficult for me to get my head around it. But I do engage with Facebook and Instagram, and you can find me there uh, as Christopher Hughes, which. K-R-I-S-T-O-S-S-E-R. But also the Anglesey Druid Order and our website, which is anglesydruidorder.co.uk. You can find us on Facebook and our primary website as well. And and we we offer all sorts of online courses and workshops and in-person workshops. Well, perhaps once the pandemic has has eased a little, we might be able to get back to that. But um, but we try and be as active as we can. And, you know, even even though I feel as if I'm somewhat from the arc when it comes to technology, the day after um, Kalangayev, the day after Halloween, we did a live wakening of the Mariluid. So the Mariluid is a very peculiar Welsh tradition, which is um, a horse's skull wrapped in a shroud, and she's animated by an operator underneath, and her jaw clacks, and uh, she is representative of the sovereignty of winter, and she's our goddess of winter, so... She comes to life, if you like, at um, Halloween, goes back to sleep at Kalenik or the old New Year on the 16th of January. So we did a live version of the awakening ceremony. And do you know, over 5,000 people watched live and and subsequently we've had 19,000 people watch the recording. And and I find that quite remarkable that we do have this technology that that can reach so many people. And so many people were were moved by the presence of this dead horse goddess who is very much not dead when she's animated. And I love that. And and I do wish I was just slightly better at getting my head around all of this technology. <laughs> I was but, uh, one of the Facebook, I, I love Facebook. And I have, my, I have my own page on Facebook as well. So yeah. And one of the things that will also happen, Chris, is that over the next week or two, we will put this information about how to find you and pictures of your books, covers and oh. whatnot on our Facebook page as well. So folks can also find you there. Thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you have a wonderful week. Don't forget, as always, to be the light for yourself and others. Take care, everyone. You are listening to Psychic Teachers, a podcast for seekers, lightworkers, mystics, and magical thinkers. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend and take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. You can also find us on iHeart, Spotify, Podcast Addict, Google Podcast, Podbean, and more. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.